Welcome to Worldview from WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. The U.S.'s Kurdish allies in northern Syria are fighting the U.S.'s NATO allies, Turkey. We'll get a Turkish take on what's happening in northern Syria. The U.S. provides intelligence and logistics for Saudi Arabia's fight in Yemen. We'll hear about a congressional move to get the U.S. out of Yemen. Then a break from war, and we'll sample some ponchkis, the Lenten Polish delicacy. Don't forget you can join the conversation on Twitter at WBEZ Worldview. Three weeks ago, Turkey launched Operation Olive Branch, and their goal is to oust the Kurdish YPG forces out of the town of Afrin, close to the Turkish border. Turkey considers them a terrorist group like the PKK. Then Turkey's plan is to move further east to the town where the U.S. is stationed with its Kurdish allies, the YPG. President Erdogan warned the, US, warned the U.S. last month that don't get between us and terrorist organizations or we will not be responsible for the unwanted consequences. The U.S. and its 2,000 troops show no inclination to leave the area. Secretary of State Rex Tillerson is on his way to Turkey for talks. With me is Umet Ajar. He is the Consul General of Turkey in Chicago. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. You know, the U.S. and um, other people have been fighting ISIS in northern Syria, and I've always been asking people, what is the best-case scenario after uh, ISIS falls and, and people retake this territory? Who's going to uh, hold it? Who's going to be the, the power? And I never got a really great answer from anybody, but um, – and right now, the U.S. is saying it should be uh, the U.S. and the, the YPG should hold on to some of this territory. Um, what's your answer? Who's, a, who's the right person to hold this territory? Well, of course, the answer to that question is the Syrian people, Syrian people of Arabs, Kurds, Turkmens, Muslims, and Christians. Does that mean the Assad administration? No, it does not mean the Assad administration. Since the beginning of this war, the crisis, Turkey was the only country firmly opposing the Assad regime uh, in uh, Syria. Here is the situation what we have, because in your introduction, you also referred to the word Kurds and Kurdish, Syrian Kurdish population. Today, 65% of almost 600 miles along Turkey-Syria borders being controlled by a group called uh, Syrian Democratic Forces, SDF, and YPG, People's Protection Units. And who are they? They are PKK. PKK is a terrorist organization, Kurdistan Workers' Party, which is waging a terrorist campaign against my country for more than 30 years. And these are the people who are their Syrian branches, and so, they are posing a very serious national security threat to my country. In your mind, are they worse than ISIS? Well, First of all, uh, we have to treat all the terrorist organizations on the equal footing. One terrorist organization targeting Western countries and Western people, Americans, Europeans, doesn't make them more terrorists than the other terrorist organization just targeting the Turks and Kurds in, in country. But Turkey, it seems like Turkey's more lit up about this terrorist organization well, well, than the previous one. That is not correct. Turkey has been fighting against uh, the uh, ISIS since the beginning. Turkey was uh, the country who declared designated ISIS as a terrorist organization long before the many European countries. 
Turkey suffered from 14 major terrorist attacks carried out by ISIS uh, in major Turkish cities, killing more than 300 people and wounding more than 1,300 uh, people. So just tell me if there is any other country suffered in the Western world more than Turkey did. I would love to hear it from you. But it seems like ISIS did create more fatalities than the YPG has in, in its limited Syrian entity, and that is the PKK, over Look, 30 years. But right now, it seems like ISIS was a worse threat. Turkey uh, still uh, the part of the international coalition, 74-member coalition, and that coalition uh, that contains the NATO members, the European Union. So we believe that our alliance is strong enough to defeat ISIL. YPG, make no mistake, is rebranded uh, the PKK. And it's not me saying that. It is the U.S. authorities, U.S. officials, U.S. military officials saying that you can go visit YouTube and take a look at the congressional, uh, the Senate uh, the hearing meetings between uh, the I especially recommend your listeners to go and listen to uh, the, the, the conversation between Senator Lindsey Graham and then uh, the, uh, the Defense Secretary Ash Carter to, to learn about what uh, YPG is. YPG, PYD were uh, the PKK rebranded, uh, the PKK, uh, the branches in uh, Syria. And it is very uh, heartbreaking and disappointing for me to see that our, the, the big, uh, the, the NATO ally, the longtime friend of the United States, are providing weapons to these groups, which is very disappointing. I'm talking with Umar Ajar, the Council General of Turkey and Chicago, and we're talking about Turkey's Operation Olive Branch. They've launched an offensive against Afrin in Syria, against Kurdish forces there that they consider terrorist. The U.S. is allied with this organization. Now, the U.S., I noticed General Mattis said that uh, Turkey has a legitimate security concern, and we do not dismiss that one bit along the border with Syria. But it doesn't make um, doesn't seem to make the U.S. want to change its position. Its idea is to sit there and to keep this region away from Bashar Assad and away from Iran, being able to move goods through this area. The U.S. is not it seems hunkered down on this position. I don't know where the give is between who should who should move. Well, Turkey's position is very clear. Turkey wants Syria without terrorist organization, clear from all terrorists, ISIL, the, the PKK, the others, then give the territory, give the country back to the Syrian people. And talks are going on between uh, the Turkish and the U.S. authorities. This weekend, the, the National Security Advisor, General McMaster, was in Turkey. And uh, this week, our foreign minister will be coming together and Secretary Mattis will be meeting his Turkish uh, counterpart. And the talks are going on. And I know that our authorities, uh, they're trying to find a way uh, from uh, this very unfortunate situation. But uh, And I'm confident that we will find a way out of this situation. One thing is very clear. Turkey and the United States are two countries, longtime NATO allies and two largest armies in uh, NATO. And if there is a terrorist organization, a terrorist threat, I think NATO is capable enough. Our coalition, 74-member coalition, is capable enough to defeat uh, that uh, threat. Right now, it seems like the Turkish forces are meeting pretty stiff resistance. A number of Turkish troops died over the weekend. One of the reasons given for that is that uh, the Syrian government of Bashar Assad is helping the YPG out a little bit and letting material flow to that area. And the two are supposedly having talks. And a lot of people think that the YPG may realign itself with Bashar Assad and that would be the legitimate entity backed by Russia and, and Iran and the rest that would take over this territory. Well, YPG can cooperate and partner with 
any uh, the group, uh, the underground. They are a terrorist organization, and we cannot rely on YPG. A couple of months ago, I'm sure you follow that, there were some media reporting about how they cut a deal with ISIL in Raqqa to get back Raqqa and let more than 400 ISIS terrorists just uh, leave Raqqa. We don't know where they are, where are these people. Maybe they are in Turkey, maybe in some Western cities. So this is the reason we have been telling our allies and friends that you shouldn't be relying on a terrorist organization. One terrorist organization fighting another would not let legitimize that terrorist organization. That is why we are calling on our friends and allies to uh, rely on our uh, alliance. And also, please be careful with this, uh, the smear campaign and dark propaganda about the information just sent out. The reason Turkey is uh, advancing firmly, and if uh, you are uh, referring to this a little bit slowly, is because Turkey doesn't only want to minimize the civilian casualty. Turkey tries to avoid any civilian casualty. In such campaigns, once civilian, one innocent uh, the person killed is one too many, and Turkey doesn't want to see that. So far, we haven't received any confirmed civilian casualty, and as I said, there's a lot of misinformation and disinformation going on. Operation Olive Well, Branch, I mean, the Syrian Observatory for Human Rights says that it's 70 civilian deaths so far. And no, those figures are not that... independently confirmed figures, part of the campaign, and, and also, you have to be very careful with that. Uh, YPG and PYD are arming civilians and putting their, uh, their militia and their terrorists and civilian clothes in order to give a picture that the Turkey is targeting civilians. Turkey is not carpet bombing cities and villages uh, in Afrin like many other uh, the partners on the ground did. Because that was that would make Turkey's uh, the, the Turkey is not uh, the rushing for a quick victory and uh, the, the, an occupation or invasion in Afrin. Turkey is advancing very firmly, slowly, and Turkey is uh, trying to avoid. Uh, from any uh, the civilian casualty. Now, I noticed that the Turkish foreign minister went to Iran uh, over the weekend, and the, even the Iranians seem to think that Turkey should pull back and, and agree with the U.S., ironically, that this is just going to cause more casualties. It was the words of the uh, Iranian foreign minister. They would like to see Turkey pull back. Well, I don't know whether your government would take any recommendations from Iranian government on that. When it comes to national security issues and protection of our border, we wouldn't take any recommendation from any other country. We know what the terrorists, uh, uh, the threat is. We know what's going on along our borders. And we are very firm and determined to protect our borders because... Only last year, only last year, we had 700 attacks from Afrin, from the northern part of Syria, into Turkey, harassments and attacks. And starting from uh, this year, we had more than 94 uh, rockets fired uh, into Turkey. Turkey is a NATO country, NATO border. We lost seven civilians at our border and uh, the, 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 the more than 100 people wounded. So this is a very serious uh, threat. It's not a joke, and we have to take it very seriously. Well, if it's a serious threat, how long is Turkey willing to sit in northern Syria and enforce it? Well, the, an- the, answer is mean, the answer is very simple. It's, we made it very clear. The, until the time we uh, are able to clear all the terrorists from uh, the, the Afrin and northern Syria, this operation will continue. And once we, do, we did that, we were able to do that. We're not going to stay there. We're not going to occupy the northern Syria. We're going to return it to its uh, original people, the Syrian people, and help them rebuild their economy. Right now, we're doing in, in in another part. Last year, we uh, launched another operation and successfully concluded a Euphrates shield operation. And right now, the cleared area from the ISIL, the, the Turkey is helping the local business and developing projects there, infrastructure projects. Once we clear the area, when the peace and order is back, uh, the same will happen in Afrin as well. 
When you say clear the area, does that mean uh, a lot of people fear ethnic cleansing? If uh, you know every Kurdish person is a terrorist, then you're clearing. Well, this is absolutely not out. the case. Please, uh, the the. Uh, the uh, Anytime there is a safety and security problem in Iraq and Syria, the people are turning to Turkey, regardless of their ethnic, religious uh, origin. Today, Turkey is hosting more than 3.5 million refugees, and around 500,000 of them are with the Kurdish uh, origin. Now, in the Free Syrian Army on the Turkish side, the Kurdish, uh, the, the members of Free Syrian Army also joining this operation. Turkey has no problem with Syrian Kurds, Syrian Kurdish population. This operation is not against the Syrian Kurds. There are many Syrian groups in uh, uh, the Syria right now, Syrian Kurdish groups right now, but PYD, YPG is not the right one to take control of the Syrian con- controls in uh, Syria. And when you say return this area to the Syrian people, I don't know what entity that is. Is there a entity that would establish a police force? The U.S. wants to establish a police force with the YPG and other elements. Well, uh, this is a, that will be completely an unfortunate decision. We believe that the Syrian future, Syria's future, will be decided by the Syrian uh, the people. But there is no way, no place, and no say for the terrorist organizations in that. Of course, uh, uh, the uh, a border protection unit or any entity, any state-like actor uh, along our borders would be uh, completely unacceptable and we will not let that happen. The whole Syrian situation seems like such a mess now and there seem to be competing talks between Geneva talks and talks with Russia and Iran, which Turkey takes part in. Um, what do you see any kind of solution coming down the pike here? Because it seems like Russia and Iran are going to win in Syria and enforce some kind of solution. Well, look, who started the war in Syria and why we have been unable to put an end to this humanitarian crisis are two different things. Who started the war in Syria is very clear. Syrian regime did that. It's not Turkey. It's not United States. It's not any other country started the war. It's the Syrian regime, Assad's regime, who is using chemical weapons against its own people, torturing its own people for many years. But why we have been unable to put an end to this humanitarian crisis is a complex issue. It, it, it contains our broken international system, the decision-making in the United Nations, the f- five permanent members of the United States Nations. When one member says no, you cannot take any decision. So Turkey and the United States started this, uh, the, the, the cooperation together in Syria. And the idea was to bring peace and order to Syria. Then it seems that they, they took different ways. But now, in order to put an end, the conflict and the humanitarian disaster, I think we need to work together all the actors on the ground and put an end to this humanitarian crisis. And please also keep in mind that Turkey is now, again, as I mentioned, hosting 3.5 million refugees in Turkey. Turkey is the first time in its own history is the largest refugee hosting country, and this is costing a lot. Umed Ajar is the Consul General of Turkey here in Chicago. We were talking about Operation Olive Branch. Turkey launched it several weeks ago, and their goal is to rouse the Kurdish YPG forces, U.S. allies in the region, and the Rex Tillerson's on his way to Turkey for talks. Thanks a lot for joining us and talking about the situation. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Coming up after the break, we'll talk about U.S. entanglements in Yemen. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ.
This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. It's been almost three years since Saudi Arabia started its military campaign in Yemen. A humanitarian disaster has been the principal result. The U.S. provides the logistical and intelligence assistance that Saudi Arabia needs in Yemen. There is a move afoot in Congress to stop U.S. support for Saudi Arabia's war in Yemen. With me is Robert Nyman. He is policy director for the organization Just Foreign Policy. Thanks for joining me. Good to be with you. Uh, You know, I think a lot of people probably don't know what U.S. involvement with Saudi Arabia and Yemen is really. I mean, we we say things like logistical and intelligence assistance, but what does the U.S. really do there? Well, the key thing that many people don't know is that in addition to providing the weapons that Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates have used to bombard uh, Yemen, uh, destroy civilian infrastructure – create the largest uh, humanitarian crisis in the world by destroying sewage sewage treatment plants. In addition to that, the United States is directly participating by refueling the Saudi and UAE bombers in the middle of their bombing run. So the the United States is is in fact a co-belligerent. It's a direct participant in the war. And this is significant in constitutional terms because under the Constitution, under the Declare War Clause, under the War Powers Resolution, Congress is uh, is supposed to uh, declare war, authorize the use of force before the president – uses military force if the United States hasn't been attacked. The Houthis never attacked the United States. The Houthis are not uh, what everyone thinks of them. They're not an associated force of al-Qaeda. This is not authorized by the 2001 AUMF. This military intervention was never authorized by Congress. And under the War Powers Resolution, a single member of Congress can call the question on an unauthorized war and introduce a privileged resolution to force a debate and vote on the end of U.S. participation. And that's what we've been asking Congress to do. Call the question on this, force a debate and vote on ending unauthorized, unconstitutional U.S. participation in this war. Now, if you were to do that, if, if a congressperson were to initiate that procedure, they'd want to win. They'd want to have guys on their side yes. already and yes. have this hammered out. Yes. And there has been some discussion about this in, in, or in the House side, and there, there's, been, there's been some serious thoughts about that. Yes, and a, the resolu- a bipartisan resolution was in, in the, uh, introduced in the House, H. Conrad's 81, uh, which currently has 50 co-sponsors. It was privileged. House leadership uh, stripped its privilege, uh, blocked blocked a vote. Um, we're hopeful that in the Senate uh, we'll get a different outcome uh, if we can get a bipartisan resolution, which we hope will happen um, very soon. It's also important to note that there is a, a, a precedent in, in the Senate uh, – In uh, last June, there was a bipartisan resolution against the Saudi arms deal, and that failed 47-53. 43 Democrats uh, and four Republicans voted against continuing to arm Saudi Arabia's war in Yemen. So that was kind of a proxy vote uh, on the war. And that's a reason that we're hopeful that when this resolution is introduced in the Senate to end on unconstitutional participation, that we have a path to 51, because in June we had 47, including Senator Durbin and Senator Duckworth uh, voted against continuing to arm Saudi Arabia. In our neighboring states, um, uh, uh, Senator Donnelly, Democrat, uh, voted to continue arm- arming uh, Saudi Arabia, even though Senator Young, Republican, uh, voted against uh, arming Saudi Arabia. Claire McCaskill in Missouri, Democrat of Missouri, voted to continue arming Saudi Arabia. So we believe that if the Senate Democratic leadership, including Senator Durbin, 
makes it a priority to corral other Democrats, that we have a path to 51 senators uh, voting against unconstitutional U.S. participation in this war. Now, what kind of factor is the Trump presidency here in all this? Uh, do they have a say? Can they wrangle votes? Um, uh, they, they seem at times sympathetic to humanitarian issues in Yemen, but at the same time, they're the biggest pals of Saudi Arabia ever. The, the Trump administration, both of those things are true. The, the Trump came in saying, you know, we're going to fix the uh, relationship with Saudi Arabia. They went and held the orb and so on and so forth. And at the beginning of the Trump administration was really a signaling we're going to double down on this. You know, Obama, this war started, let's be honest, this war started under President Obama. But uh, towards the end of the Obama administration, uh, the Obama administration was starting to pull back, limited some weapon sales. Trump came in and said, no, that, that was wrong. You know, we need to get even closer to Saudi Arabia. We need to double down. Over the course of the past year, the Trump administration has started to recognize the humanitarian crisis. And even uh, 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 President Trump said the Saudi blockade of Yemen uh, needs to end. That's the thing that's really causing the, the near famine that's causing a million um, cases of cholera. Uh, Trump said that needs to end. And he also – the White House called for an uh, immediate ceasefire. Of course, that hasn't um, happened. So uh, at least rhetorically, they started to shift. And that does, I think, uh, help create an opening because we can say to members of Congress, look, we're just saying that the thing that the White House said should happen, a total end of the blockade, immediate ceasefire, that's what you should bring about by ending unconstitutional participation in this war. I'm talking with Robert Nyman. He's policy director for the organization Just Foreign Policy, and we're discussing the move afoot in Congress to stop U.S. support for Saudi Arabia's war in Yemen. Uh, you describe a situation where you, where this action would shut the war down almost. But, but is, that, is that true? I mean, Saudi Arabia seems so committed to this war. It's such a proxy thing with Iran, and uh, they, they seem to want it really bad. And w would they just keep doing it? Uh, of course, it's, at this stage, it's a counterfactual, right? Because we don't know exactly what will happen. But I believe that the um, U.S. support is essential. Um, both in a physical sense that certainly they couldn't do all the bombings that they're doing without the U.S. refueling capacity. Um, they couldn't do it without the U.S. weapons. And they couldn't do it without U.S. diplomatic cover at the United Nations. The United States, Britain, and France have blocked Security Council uh, action on this led by uh, the United States. I don't believe that the United States could – that the Trump administration could – continue its current policy if the Senate rejected it. And I don't believe that Saudi Arabia could or would continue the war if United States support was withdrawn. Congress seems to have put the War Powers Act um, in its back pocket so many times. It just doesn't really use its war powers uh, authority in, a, in any demonstrative sense anymore. Um, the war in Libya was an instance where it seemed like the, the U.S. Uh, could have easily used the war – Congress could have easily used the War Powers Act, didn't choose to do so. Um, why would it do so now? Well, I think the better precedent for us is uh, August 2013. When uh, President Obama uh, announced his intention to bomb Syria, uh, the Syrian government, without congressional authorization, and uh, 200 uh, bipartisan members of the House wrote to President Obama during the August recess and said, under the Constitution and the War Powers Resolution, you cannot do this without us. 
and we're ready to, if this is an emergency, we're ready to be called back into session. And if it's not an emergency, then it can wait till we come back into session. And President Obama backed down and said, you know, uh, no, I'm, I'm going to go to Congress for authorization. And that was just sending letters. That, that's all they did. They send letters. And of course, I mean, they did other things. But the, this shows that simply asserting the Constitution and constitutional war powers was um, sufficient to block President Obama from doing that. In the case of Libya, they didn't do nothing. Uh, they did complain. Um, and uh, Dennis Kucinich uh, introduced a bipartisan resolution after the bombing had already started, unfortunately, um, calling the question, invoking Section 5C of the War Powers Resolution to end uh, unauthorized, unauthorized U.S. participation, the same provision we're asking the Senate to uh, do now. That had the effect of forcing the question. Uh, Speaker Boehner did a substitute that was non-binding but did rebuke the Obama administration for the unauthorized war. And that set a precedent for Syria. It was one of the reasons why uh, members of Congress were poised to speak up in August 2013 was the 2011 experience. So it's in, in the, the important takeaway is this power is there. It's always there. And Congress can use it at any time. And they will use it if they hear from their constituents that they want them to use it. And in, in, in 2013, the phone lines melted. People said the phone calls against were like 100 to 1. We could do that now. And if we did it, then Congress would act differently, and that would force the administration to act differently. Well, do you have any feeling that there is a groundswell of support for stopping the war in Yemen with Saudi Arabia? Because it doesn't seem to be like a tangible issue. Like when President Obama was going to bomb Syria, that was a big deal. Everybody was thinking about it. Everybody had an opinion. This does not seem like one of those deals. I think the world will change when our resolution is introduced. People respond to what they see Congress doing, what they see in the newspapers. Um, I believe this will uh, be a bad signal in the sky that many Americans who um, are not fans of war but may have uh, become kind of inured and given up on them. Well, we can't, you know, it's like 1984. We've always been at war with Eurasia. We've been at war for 16 years. This war is different. This war is different because it has nothing to do with al-Qaeda. Congress has never authorized it. Worst humanitarian crisis in the world. And when, when bipartisan senators stand up and say, we're driving for 51 votes to end unauthorized U.S. participation in this war, I believe that Americans will respond and engage their senators uh, in that push for 51 votes. You keep uh, distinguishing this from the war against al-Qaeda, which the U.S. fights very vigorously in Yemen and kills people. Uh, the U.S. is killing people, kills some, some civilians here and there. And they're, uh, is that giving us uh, um, uh, a kind of cover? Does that give the U.S. a cover in Yemen that most people really think, well, we're already at war in Yemen and we're going to be at war in Yemen in the future? We, how, do, how does you know, just stopping the Saudis doesn't really stop the thing? Well, I think that's a mistaken way of thinking about it. In, in other uh, – I mean I, I think what you say is true. In some extent, people will have war no matter what and you know, it's, it's all war. But it's not all war. Not all wars are the same. Um, uh, you know, World War II wasn't the same as Vietnam. 
Um, that doesn't mean that you know World War II was totally wonderful, but there is a difference between um, uh, bad things that happen in every war and a war which is completely unnecessary. I think most Americans would now say that the the war in Vietnam was was completely unnecessary, unjustified from start to finish. The war in Iraq was completely uh, unnecessary, un unjustified from start to, fi to finish. And this is what uh, I believe if Americans look at it, they will see that this, whatever you think about the war against uh, al-Qaeda, uh, al-Qaeda is, I think, in dispute, this is a group of people that want to kill Americans and uh, have shown that given the opportunity, they would do that. And that's obviously something that Americans are you know, regardless of what you think the right thing to do, uh, that's something that the government should do something about. The Houthis are not a group of people that are trying to kill Americans. They're not al-Qaeda. They're not even Sunni. Um, they they don't have a dispute with the United States. And when somebody uh, who uh, – when the United States is involved in uh, – wants to be involved in military action against somebody who has no dispute with the United States, has never attacked the United States, that's supposed to be authorized by Congress before it happens. And that is uh, – distinguishable and distinct from uh, going after people that have attacked the United States. Robert, who are the organizations and people who are campaigning on this issue and kind of bringing together people? Um, uh, Just Foreign Policy is my organization. Peace Action is one of our collaborators. Chicago Area Peace Action has been very uh, engaged in this issue, um, uh, and especially uh, worked on the House bill. And if people want to, um, uh, more information about how to get involved in the Chicago area, they can go to the uh, CAPA website, Chicago area. Uh, Peace Action, Friends Committee on National Legislation, Yemen Peace Project. Um, some of the uh, humanitarian aid groups have were, have been involved in the campaigns against U.S. Uh, arms sales Saudi Arabia, like Oxfam, uh, and human rights groups like Human Rights Watch and Amnesty International. So there's actually a, a broad coalition that have been uh, of groups that have been engaged in this. That's how, part of how we got 47 votes in the Senate. And I'm hopeful that when people see that this is uh, the the angle now that we're using to call the question, that that coalition will come back together again. Well, Robert Nyman is the policy director for the organization Just Foreign Policy. And thanks for joining us and talking about the effort to get Congress to get the U.S. out of Saudi Arabia. Keep us updated. Thank you. Coming up after the break, we'll get our mind off war and on to Ponchkeys. It's Ponchkey Day tomorrow in Chicago, and we'll talk with Monica Ang about that. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. It's time for our World History Minute with historian John Schmidt. John's the author of On This Day in Chicago History. We have him working a global beat for this program. And today we go back to the colonial era in the Asia-Pacific region, 
for uh, something people don't think much about but was pretty important, the Russo-Japanese War. Yes, this was a turning point, uh, February 8th, 1904, the start of the uh, Russo-Japanese War. When the last decades of the 19th century, Japan was emerging from isolation. It began industrializing, modernizing. Japan also had territorial ambitions on the mainland of East Asia. Meanwhile, Russia was also becoming more involved in East Asia. In 1898, the Russians signed a lease with China for a warm water port, and they began building a base, and they called it Port Arthur. Well, Japan saw this Russian expansion and to their sphere of influence as a threat. So the Japanese proposed that each country uh, carve out a separate sphere of influence in East Asia. Russia would dominate Manchuria, and Japan would dominate Korea. Well, the Russians refused the deal. So Japan decided to go to war against Russia. And late on the evening, February 8, 1904, the Japanese Navy launched a surprise attack on the Russian fleet at Port Arthur. Well, the battle itself was a draw, but the uh, Russia and Japanese war had begun. And over the next uh, year, there were a series of battles on sea and on land. Each time Japan won, but in the summer of 1905, both sides were ready to talk peace. See, the war had become very unpopular in Russia. Uh, they were losing all these battles. The economy was bad and revolts had broken out. And the Russian government was looking for a way to get out of the war without losing face. And in Japan, of course, those military victories had made the war popular. But the public didn't know that their army and navy had been stretched to the limit. And the country had also been pushed to the brink of bankruptcy. So the Japanese officials, they were also looking for a way to get out. Now President Theodore Roosevelt of the United States offered to mediate the war. And Japanese and Russian delegates met at a naval base in Maine, and they hammered out the Treaty of Portsmouth. And by the treaty, Russia agreed to leave Manchuria, and they let Japan have a free hand in Korea, and uh, they also signed over the lease on Port Arthur to Japan. Well, the Russo-Japanese War was a historic milestone. It was the first modern war in which an Asian country defeated a Western country. Japan was now recognized as a world power. And at the same time, the weakness of Tsarist Russia was also revealed. And that, of course, would climax in revolution a dozen years later. Well, President Roosevelt won the Nobel Peace Prize for his mediation. But some Japanese thought that the country had been cheated in the treaty. And uh, they began to distrust the United States. And a significant amount of anti-American feeling began to fester in Japan over the next several decades, which, of course culminates in World War II. John Schmidt, our World History Minute, February 8th, 1904, the Russo-Japanese War, Pearl Harbor, just uh, a stone's throw away. One could say that was the beginning of the bad relations that uh, ended in Pearl Harbor. John Schmidt, thanks for this World History Minute. Okay, Jerome.
This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. Tomorrow is Ponchki Day. It's the Polish-American version of Mardi Gras when folks all over town sink their teeth into lard lard fried jelly donuts and they kick off Lent. In fact, it is uh, in Chicago. Ponchki Day is celebrated twice. WBEZ's Monica Ang explored this Polish delicacy with Chicago Tribune food writer Louisa Chu. Here's their report. I'm gonna cruise as a compound, eat all the punchy I see. Cruise as a compound, eat all the punchy I see. When I eat all the punchy I see. Happy Punchy Day, Chicago. Like Fat Tuesday, this holiday marks a time of feasting before the Lenten fast. But unlike Fat Tuesday, it's celebrated on two distinct days in Chicago's Polish community. By being of Polish extraction and living in Chicago, you basically get the best of both worlds. That's Jan Loris, Managing Director of the Polish Museum of America, located on Milwaukee Avenue in Chicago's West Town neighborhood. In Poland, the tradition is that you're getting ready for Lent, so you should get rid of all your animal fats. And you make ponczki. Uh, which are deep-fat fried, kruszczyki, they look a little bit like bow ties, sprinkled with white powdered sugar. Those treats are served on the Thursday before Ash Wednesday in Poland, and also in Chicago's traditional bakery-filled Polish-American communities. So now if you celebrate the Polish tradition, you have that. Then when you come to the United States, since the big thing is Mardi Gras, the idea came of having Ponczki Day in the United States being Shrove Tuesdays, so kind of combining an existing American holiday with something from Poland. That's how most U.S. Polish communities do it. But in Chicago, we respectfully observe both traditions, meaning for the diehard Punchki fans... You have them on Thursday, then you uh, starve yourself over the weekend and have them on Tuesday again. So now that you understand the history of the Double Donut Day, we should say a word about linguistics. I recently asked Loris if he could tell me the singular of Punchki. Well, no, you never eat one. <laughs> uh, but let's say you did. It it's was... a Punchek. We also asked the question during a visit to Delightful Pastries in Jefferson Park. We'll get Punchek Got that? The singular is ponczek. The plural is punchki. As in, I can't believe I just ate 17 punchki for a snack. You may also be wondering if punchki are really that much different from jelly donuts, Bismarck's, Berliner's, Bombellini, Boston creams, or sufganiot. From the looks of them, you might think they're all the same. But delightful pastries owner Dober Berlinski says it's just not true. People really eat jelly-filled donuts for the jelly. They don't eat them for the dough itself. And a ponczek... What happens is people eat it for the dough, not for the filling. So relatively, there's less filling, more dough. And once this actually cools off, when you bite into it, it goes, it springs back up. It doesn't stay in a pancake shape. On Wednesday morning, the day before Punchki Day Number 1, Belinsky was presiding over a bustling kitchen that will crank out more than 20,000 Punchki over the next week. And that's just the orders that we know about, and we still have to make it for the people who are walking into the stores. On our visit, giant bowls of flour, rum, eggs, yeast, and sugar were spinning under the mixer. Workers rolled mounds of dough into lime-sized balls for proofing. And once risen, whole trays of ponchki buns would be lowered into enormous vats of oil. Traditionally, that frying fat would have been lard. But due to changing customer demands, today, Belinsky uses a blend of canola and soy oils. Midway through frying, the bobbing buns are expertly flipped with what look like two mahogany chopsticks. I'm making 40,000 ponchki and Milena frying 40,000 ponchki. <laughs> 
When the hot walnut-colored pastries emerge from the fryer, they're crisp, chewy, and nearly greaseless. Thanks, Balinski claims, to the rum in the dough. Next up is the sugar glaze, which is sometimes studded with candied orange peels, a delicacy in Poland during a time when fresh fruit could be scarce. And lastly comes the injection of filling. Traditional fillings include prune and rose petal jam. But in recent years, Belinsky's gotten more creative. Vanilla bean custard and vodka. We did Jameson's whiskey and chocolate custard. I think that's a great combination. And then we did moonshine (laughs) with lemon curd. So (laughs) those are the adult ones. She's especially proud of her tart passion fruit punchki, meant to inject a little tropical sunshine into these frosty winter days. It's basically sugar puree of the passion fruit and apple pectin. If you ask a dozen punchki lovers to name their favorite flavor, you could easily get a dozen different answers back. Everyone has an opinion, according to Loris of the Polish Museum. I like rose petal. I'm not a big fan of prune. There's custard. And in Poland, they have a bakery that sells at least 12 varieties of punchki to include kiwi, avocat, which is a uh, thick creamed liqueur. Also, they have apricot, peach, rose, strawberry, cream, plum, and strawberry and cherry. But regardless of which flavor you choose, we can all agree that these round poofs of pastry love deliver some much-needed comfort during this long, punishing winter. So how do you say Happy Punchki Day in Polish? Belinsky's mother, Stasia, broke the news that there is no such expression in Poland. It's no Happy Punchki. We say smacznego. This means buon appetit. It's no happy, happy in Poland all the time. But looking for yet another magical mashup of Polish and Chicago culture, we implored Loris to take a stab at a translation for us. Happy Ponczki Day, yes. Okay, so here goes. Monica Eng whipping out the Polish there. Nice job. Gotta do it. And Monica's here, and we've got a table full of ponchki. All those flavors you heard are virtually represented on the table, and then some, because people keep inventing new flavors. That's true. I mean, there's Jameson, there's the kiwi that he mentioned. Rose petal is a new one on me. Right. Well, that's actually old-fashioned. It sounds old school. (laughs) The new-fashioned are like, I got a caramel fudge one for you today. They are all over the place. Even Jewel had their huge display out this morning. Is this just a marketing ploy to sell a lot of donuts for bakeries? Is it, did it, does it come down to that, Monica? Well, I'm not sure everybody who's buying them at Jewel is really <laughs> thinking about atonement and pre-Lenten uh, preparation. Uh, so, it, yeah, a lot of it seems about selling donuts. It seems, uh, but it is a lot of fun. And I, am, I was shocked when I went to get some ponchki a few years ago, and, and it became like a uh, thing, well, did you pre-order? And I exactly. could not get a ponchki off these people who had thousands of them in front of them and me in boxes because you got to pre-order your punch. Yeah, you're like the kid with his face pressed up against the glass. All the places that we're going to talk about are not pre-ordering and are, well, are, are, are we can, people can go and get them. Actually, Dinkles that I stopped by this morning, they said, if you don't have your orders in by early afternoon, you may be out of luck on the punchki. All right. So, but, but but they're out there, and there's dozens of places. To, right. Let's let's, talk let's about eat a, let's eat a punchki from. Somewhere. All right. Well, we've got Ann's Bakery. We've got a plum, raspberry, and custard. You want to grab one? Now, these are nice and plump. And you know, when I when you talk to Dobra Bielinski at Delightful Pastries, who uh, some called the number one punchki headquarters for Chicago, she says that the dough should be as delicious as the jelly. She puts some very special butter and maybe even some white lightning in there to get them really fluffy. 
Well, that's nice. What, do you, what are you thinking? What's inside there, Jerome? I didn't even get to the inside. It, wow. it was all that excellent dough that is just as good as the inside. Oh, there you go. Well, then um, that, that follows Dobra's rule. Um, and, you know, what are we going to wash this down with? Some punchki stout. Have you seen this? No, I heard there's this brewery and they've made a special beer just for Ponchki Day. It's only going to be sold on Ponchki Day. Right. Mars Community Brewing has got a new drink said to be made with Peruvian cocoa nibs. Uh, I think they wanted to get Polish cocoa, but somehow they got Peruvian and an international um, mix-up that may just be delicious. As a Peruvian myself, I totally approve. <laughs> now, uh, we're trying to wrench a beer out of the six-pack or a four-pack there. Four we pack go. there. Yes. All right. And we're going we're gonna to eat one. We're going to eat a beer. All right. Um, that tastes like a ponchki. Ponchki, let's pronounce it. You're going to get a lot of callers. Wait, you, you were mispronouncing it in the thing? I was, I, I was all over the place. But that <laughs> was four years all ago. Over the I've place gotten much smarter. Ponchki. Ponchki. P O A N. Ponchki. Well, cheers. Uh, uh, you're, mm. There we go. Um, how do you like it? This is really good. It uh, it's it's a dark, uh, creamy, dark amber ale kind of thing. There you go. I'm going to have it with my uh, whipped cream and fresh strawberry ponchki, which costs more than others. We've got some from Ideal. I can't say this really tastes like a ponchki though. It does not taste like liquid ponchki. It tastes like a stout. It tastes like a chocolatey. <laughs> oh man, but it really goes well. <laughs> Where's ponchki? Holy moly! Yeah, it's got the chocolatiness. I wonder if you ate a chocolate punchki. So where else do we get this from? Delightful, ideal, delightful, and riches, I love to, and delightful pastries are my buddies at the farmer's market uh, down at Daily Plaza. I see them all the time. Occasionally I, I eat their stuff. Yes, and Dobra was so kind to show us. She and her mother, her mother took one out of the hot oil, and she put it against my face to show me just how hot it is. And um, that was a lesson I will never forget. Kurovsky's Sausage Shop on Milwaukee. Well, let's British have a, bakery. Is there a sausage in our punchki? Oh, well, not here. But if you go to Rudy's uh, Strudel in Cleveland, where they take punchki day really seriously, they've got what's called the Clevelander punchki, and it's punchek, singular. And they put sauerkraut and sausage in it. On Thursday, they had the big Cleveland punchki parade. I gotta parade. say, that sounds awful. Right? It's savory. Well, Fried I, dough with sa- sausage and sauerkraut? Well, it's a lot like a piroshki, which is a savory fried piece of dough that I had a lot when I lived in the former Soviet Union. And there'll be um, meat or cheese inside there or potatoes. But uh, I'm looking in Chicago for the savory ponchik. So um, Kurovsky's is a, is, a, is, a so- is a sausage place and a bakery. Right. If you go in there, it smells like wonderful, wonderful smoked sausage. And you just want to take some home and cook it with sauerkraut that night. But they also have terrific baked goods. And that's over at 2976 North Milwaukee. Um, if you're out in the suburbs, Benison's or Weber's, Weber Bakery. It's a super old bakery across from the Rainbow Motel where they have like the sandwich-shaped bed. Um, and they've got punchki. A lot of bakeries told me this is their busiest day of the year. They said they will be open at 6 a.m. It's them and pre-orders, man. Exactly. So make your pre-orders. Uh, Jewel says that they're just going to keep cranking them out and they don't need pre-orders. So there's Ideal Bakery out there on 547 65 North Milwaukee. Um, 
Whereas Ann's Bakery is on West Chicago Avenue, and they have 99-cent ponchki, uh, strawberry and whipped cream. They seem like the deal. Alliance Bakery on Division Street uh, has Delightful uh, on Lawrence in Jefferson Park. Dinkles. We have Dinkles as well. And uh, I congratulate Mars Community Brewing for their effort to recreate ponchki in beer. Yeah, this I is mean, amazing. It's, it, it goes super well with ponchki. And do you know some other things that people eat as pre-Lenten snacks? Well, you've got the kruschki, you've got the Italian chofi, which are also like kruschki, like deep-fried little rosette cookies, pancake day, they, semla. These need better marketing. They need an army yeah. of uh, bakeries marketing for them. And exactly. Like, why aren't we seeing Semla Day? And that's the um, the almond paste-filled uh, bun that the Swedes eat. And now that we don't have a Swedish baker, I don't know where you get that. Uh, you've got the the Russian um, uh, blini, which everybody knows that you can eat, or the Ukrainian naliskiki and nalisnika, I've been told by our <laughs> resident Ukrainian, which is sort of like a cheese blintz. Um it's all over the place. Well, a happy almost Shrove Tuesday, Mardi Gras, Punchki Day. Happy Punchki Day. Monica Ang from WBEZ uh, hosts uh, the Chewing Chewing podcast out there with, uh, your with friend Louisa, Louisa Chu. Chu. Yeah, that was a blast from the past, Louisa and me. And and Dinya Pochkov. There you, you Awesome job, Monica. WVEZ's Worldview is produced by Steve Bynum and Julian Haida. Thanks to Galilee Abdullah and Anna Waters for production assistance and Mike Gilmore for engineering. Daniel Musisi curates our music. Come back tomorrow and we'll hear about Now Again Records. They re-release classic African rep- records. I'm Jerome McDonald and you've been listening to Worldview on WBEZ. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.